Hi, my name is Patrick Wells, and you're listening to the Root and STEM podcast, a podcast exploring issues and stories in STEAM education. In this episode of Root and STEM podcast, we explore how educators can bring ocean conservation knowledge and practices into their classroom. Hi, my name is Patrick Wells. Uh, I'm a retired science teacher of 28 years and now PhD candidate at Memorial University. I'm a member of a lot of different organizations and my affiliations are helping me to become a better science teacher and science teacher educator and uh, trying to make more connections with the ocean and especially related to things like climate change and species degradation and um, species at risk. If you're going to teach somebody about science, no matter what age they are, they have to express themselves to you in a way that lets you know what they know. And there's many ways to do that. You can speak, you can write, you can draw, you can model. There are so many ways to express yourself. But in doing that, you find out what the students' difficulties are, what their passions are, what uh, they're afraid of, what doubts they have, and what misconceptions they have about you know, the science that you're trying to teach. It's really easy to, you know, get them to question things. And, you know, if you present to them simple things, it could be optical illusion. It could be a discrepant event where you take a an, an apple and an orange and you ask them, well, which one of these is going to float? You know, you're not using any measuring devices or anything like that. You just drop them in the water. And now you got to explain it. How can you explain it? Well, like I said before, you can use many forms of expression to explain what you saw and it doesn't mean that it's not science right so stick figures arrows writing um colors uh, anything that can help explain the phenomenon that you observed in your own manner is going to help me as an educator find out what you know and maybe help you address misconceptions or tell you that you're on the right track organizations have to understand that you know you may not get all the curriculum outcomes done. And certainly for the last two years, nobody did. I don't know of anybody that did. And so, you know, the world's not broken, but higher quality professional learning that focuses on your context, so what you're doing in your school, because every school is a different culture, that is personal for the teachers, teach teachers to be personal with their students. I think that's where we've got to go. So we, and you know, that's where a lot of the research talks about, you know, things like action research, where you're asking questions and answering them in your own classroom. That's a type of professional learning that, you know, is promoted by our school district. Lesson study, which I talked about before, is, is, is a form of teacher research where you're investigating your own practice. It takes time. It's not a one-off. And this prolonged teacher learning is better for teachers, and it makes them better teachers The thing that we have to do when we're talking about these things is, again, be more explicit. Like, this is exactly what your students are doing. They're asking questions and answering questions using data like you are. So be patient. It takes time. And not everybody's going to get it. And so you're going to have to go explain it to them and ask them, well, what do you mean by, you know, what does this data tell you? Students are missing the question on, on this lab. Okay, find out why. That's the mission, right? So, and that's what action research and other teacher research techniques do. I mean, I think sitting people down and telling them what to do is tantamount to like a waste of time. Educational Passages has these boats that they release called mini boats. And they put them out in the ocean and the, they're, 
they have a sail on them and they get blown around and you can follow them by GPS. Um, but there's other monitors, there's other data you collect from them. So you're getting speed data, for example, and currents, and you can look at the weather and see what's, how that's affecting the, the speed of the boat and things like that. But this time we we put temperature probes on the boat. And so you can actually see when it slips in and out of the Gulf Stream and into the, the Labrador current, because one is warm and one is cold. The the temperatures are, are, are neat things to have, but it also... It lets you connect students with pressure systems throughout in the ocean too, because you're watching those pressure systems. There's just a lot going on out there. Like they don't realize how warm it is in some spots and then how cold it is in other spots and how fast a boat can go when it only has a little tiny sail and then how slow it can go when there's no wind blowing. It also gets them to see that like there's a lot going on beyond the horizon. This one boat that we launched had a camera on it too. So we could take pictures and, you know, unfortunately the first couple of pictures we took were the boat returning to Fogo and crashing into the rocks. Then it had to be repaired and put back out to sea. And, um, you know, it's, it's quite a story. Like when you go, when you go out on a boat, a boat is a very expensive adventure. So to go shark fishing, do one trip shark fishing costs as much as one of those mini boats. So if I had to do the math of like the data and the engagement and the number of people that will follow the mini boats and the stories that come from the mini boats. I'm saying the mini boats, even though sharks are really cool and it's great to have the pictures like educational passages, these mini boats are, are really helping people see things that, you know, they normally wouldn't engage with. Like they wouldn't like think about, well, where is that? What, what land mass is that? What current is that? Why is that so cold up there? Why is it, why did it get warm again? All these questions. And, and, um, all coming from the data from this boat. And um, it's an amazing project. It's so engaging because actually the students put the boats together. They repair the boats and things like that. So again, it's one of the things I talked about previously was drawing things and stuff like that. But when you build something, it's the same thing. There's ownership and uh, it becomes very personal. We were looking at ocean acidification and um, we were using glacial ice. Well, glacial ice was part of what we were doing in terms of looking at pH drop, but also we did it with the ocean water too. So, firstly, the the iceberg ice was was there as sort of as as a discrepant event uh, engaging thing where people would you know take the ice and feel it. Well, it's cold, you know. Put it in a beaker, pour water on it, and now listen to it, and it pops and fizzes, right? And that was, a oh, it's fizzy. It's fizzy. I got fizzy a lot for some reason, but Pops was another one I got. And so then there's, well, why does it do that? All right. Then you get to talk about glaciers and how glaciers compress snow that fell on Greenland into like a layer of ice that's like a couple millimeters thick. It's like, so one year's worth of snow is squat into a meter, two meters of snow is squat into about a millimeter of ice and all that gas is compressed in there. So as the gas that was in the snow is released when this iceberg ice melts, it pops. And of course, it doesn't have any smell. Ocean water smells. It has a smell. Uh, and this is me talking about sensory things too, right? Um, looking at ocean acidification. You need to create three acidities. You need to create a pH of about six, five and a half, a neutral, and a pH of eight or more. And that's the ocean actually. pH is higher than, than eight. So how do you make that sort of smelly so that people understand what they're dealing with if they can't see what they're dealing with and it, it it helps everybody remember the vinegar that's just that's acid right so you smell it you drop a shell in it watch what it does tap water doesn't smell you drop a shell in that and then you take your seawater 
And to make seawater, you just put salt and a couple of drops of bleach, and then it smells like bleach. And the pH is eight. So you drop the shell in that and watch what it does. Maybe the shell that's in the tap water is going to bubble a little bit, but not much. But the shell that's in the slightly vinegary water is going to bubble. All right. And one of the things I like to do to show students um, that um, things can change is we do also breathe into seawater. So they know the pH of seawater is eight, thereabouts, because we use pH probes too. You take a, a straw and you bubble your breath into seawater while the pH probe is in it. And what you'll see is that over time, it takes about two minutes, two and a half minutes, and the pH drops from eight down to seven and into six. And also, you put bromothymol blue in it, and it changes color. The thing you got to do, though, is so that everybody doesn't think the world is going to end, is like that there is hope. You take the water that you made acidic, the seawater, and you put it up on a shelf overnight, and you leave it. And you come back the next day, and it went from green back to blue, meaning that the pH is now basic again because the CO2 gassed off, which will happen in the ocean if we stop having so much CO2 in the atmosphere. But like, we have to find ways to bring other senses into everything that we do. Part of education is teaching people about people who have uh, are different in the spectrum of mobility or vision, vision or smell or hearing or whatever than you are. So you need to put people in groups like that. You need to mix the groups up, and you need people to like find out about. You know, this is this is my reality. I've had students tell people, "This is my reality. This is what I." can do right and so focus on what you can do versus what you can't do you know google for example google docs if you everybody works in google docs that's fine so if you need google docs to be printed off in braille it'll do it if you you know if you need a pdf to talk to somebody you can save the google doc as a pdf it'll it'll talk to the person it'll tell you it'll tell the person what is in the google doc uh, that's why i like working with google docs also it's very easy to share um, and then the people that need to to take that PDF and listen to it or take that PDF and turn it into Braille, they can do that. You know, but you're not going to find these things out standing behind an electric podium. Some of the best principals I know were really good at distributing leadership to other people and making it a, this is what we are, we are, we are doing this versus I need you to do this or I want you to do this. But also when it comes to group work distributing roles like you can't have somebody who's in charge of data for the whole time i'm sorry so like i have group work where there's one leader there's two data managers and there's two equipment managers if i have groups of five and they rotate through those roles so everybody gets to do the roles all the roles so they learn all the skills in science about communicating data about setting up our apparatus about communicating with a group and making sure that everybody's functioning in their role. That's what it's all about. It's not, you know, you're not the boss. You're just helping these people. Like, what do you need? That's a, that's a good leader to do. Like, what do you need to get this done? How can I help you get this done? You know, Mr. Wells, we got a problem with our, with our power supply back here. I'll get you another one. Here you go. That's what leaders do. So that's, that's what I really like about like this, this way of doing group work that I figured out only in the last six years of my teaching. And, um, it was very effective and it's kind of a military thing, right? Everybody has to know all the jobs that have to be done. If you're a diver, you need to know all the jobs. You have to be able to medically treat somebody that get hurt. 
and all these other things in the military. And I don't want to talk about the military too much, but um, you know, it's the great thing about it is like, yeah, you got to know all those roles. You got to know all those jobs. You're, oh, you're scheduled to be the equipment manager, but there's nobody here. Those two people are sick today. So now you're going to be the data manager. You got to move on. Next person up kind of thing. You're next person up. You got to go do this. So, and everybody will support you. As far as I'm concerned, that's one of the, one of my best discoveries in teaching is doing group work like that. And, you know, I'm always looking to, to pass those kinds of things on to young teachers, because if you want to do something and you want it to be effective, you'd have to be able to manage it. One of the things you got to do before you actually do serious labs is you got to play. You start with the temp- temperature probe, which is the simplest one. Push the start button. The lab quest two, which we'll use, comes up and it's like, okay, plug the probe in. It boots up. All right. And there it is, the temperature. Now squeeze the temperature probe. Okay. It's not doing anything. Okay. Hit the play button and it automatically does a 20 second experiment. And then you get to teach them how to, well, you're not going to change the time on that. You're going to change the scale on the, on the graph. Now you got to hook it to the iPad and it's all these progressions that take a month to do. And then after you're done that month and everybody knows what to do, you can do anything. Uh, certain authors talk about how discovery learning is, is detrimental for students and there's, it creates a cognitive load issue and things like that. It's like, well, you know, if you want to just throw a bunch of gear at somebody and watch them fail and call that discovery learning, well, I guess it is going to fail. But, you know, if you teach people how to use equipment, develop their skills, and then ask them to like, okay, I want you to design an experiment that will test acceleration due to gravity. Go. And then they have to go look. And by that time, they know what acceleration is. They can look up the constant for gravity. And then they can say, well, how are we going to do this? How are we going to measure this? And that's one of those experiments that you just, you design it. I'm going to come check on you. You tell me what what your protocols are, and we'll go from there. It's a progressions, right? You have to work in progressions. And, you know, starting off, you have to play. Then things get a little serious where you start to collect some data. And then then you're on your own. And, um, you know, you're monitor- each, the group members are monitoring each other. And, right? So, again, that's building stuff in. When you make inquiry experiments for students, build that stuff in so that you can, like, Learn as you go along because you're going to find the stuff that you did wrong too. And you got to be able to live with that. You know, this is the best I had now. And next time I'm going to do it this way. There's always every lesson I teach. I'm going to do this this way next time. I'm going to add this in and do that. And that's from listening and watching students. For more about space and science, check out the Root and STEM magazine at pingua.com or more episodes of the Root and STEM podcast available to download on your streaming platform of your choice, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google.